Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. And today it's my great pleasure to speak with Alan Kinch, who was the EY Luxembourg Country Managing Partner for 11 years, now going through a transition period for his successor to take over the reins from 2021. Also, the Europe, Middle East, India and Africa Private Equity Fund leader for EY, also for 11 years. He's worked in the financial sector for 25 years. And he is also a member of the Luxembourg State Council for the last five years. Welcome, Alain. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Firstly, I see in front of me a very fit, active man. I'm not quite sure how you managed to do everything and be the boss of 1,600 people. So how do you manage your time? Well, I think managing the time is the biggest challenge, basically. And that's also the reason why why I decided at some point uh, of time approaching 50 that enough is enough and working at that level uh, in terms of intensity is not something I would like to continue to do until uh, 60 or 70. So time management is probably the single most difficult thing to do, at least from my perspective. But I try to always to stay good in the body because if you're not good in your body, you're also not good in the head. So I always try to find some time to go and run or do some sports. Yeah. When you say some time, you mentioned just before we went live on air, it's five times a week you have a succession of various sports. And I, I'm just digging into this because I like to understand the mind of a leader and you're clearly very dedicated to both. So you you alternate your sports. Do tell us about it. Basically, uh, my rhythm was that I was getting up at six o'clock, doing sport from seven to eight, taking a long shower and being at the office at 8.30 or nine. So that's something I've been doing for some time. And, you know, I think that Sports is, is, is an attitude thing. I have been doing a lot of team sports, basketball when I was young. So you learn to win and you learn to lose. Uh, so it's not only for staying fit, but I think also it's something which teaches your lessons in, in life. And I always find that very helpful to get some balance out of work. You have a very driven mindset, clearly, to get to where you are right now. You have your MBA from INSEAD. Do you think that was a good foundation for your financial work? I think that in retrospect, INSEAD was probably the most, the single most, uh, the, the best investment I have done, if I might say so, in myself, because not only that you get access to the best teachers, but you get access to the best fellow students. And you come there, you think that you are already very good because you got admitted. But then you see that all these people, they're even much better than you. And that's something which stretches you. And I must say, um, there is no week, even today, uh, although I did the MBA in 2013, that I don't um, speak to somebody uh, from INSEAD. Uh, not longer than two days ago, I had somebody calling me up from Paris. I'm here in Luxembourg. Come, let's let's come and meet. So the network is something which you find very um, efficient in dealing uh, with in business, uh, in addition to the brand of the school. Now, moving to your work at EY, it has a reputation for being a very intense company. When one hears in the street about EY, they think, oh, you have to work really, really hard there. So tell us about the attitude internally. Are we wrong in what we think? No, I think you are not. I think uh, EY or the Big Four is another company for people who don't want to to work hard. But now hard is not um, only in the sense of number of hours. I think hard is taking the best out of you. 
And my philosophy was always, you, when you're born, you know, you're gifted with so many, you know, God gives you a lot of things, you're gifted with so many things, but you need something to do something out of it. And in professional life, uh, I think a big four is a company who tries to, to take these things out of you and to push you to give the best of you. And uh, the big four is, is a company where everybody starts at the same level. That means you all start from the bottom, no matter who you are, where you come from, who your parents are, what your skin color is, what your religion is, we just don't care. What we are caring about is what you are doing and how you're progressing. And it's like real life. In real life, to get somewhere, you need to invest. You need to invest time. And there are moments of joy. There are moments of frustration. I think the, the, the good thing about Big Four, which makes you go, is that it is quite interesting, actually, what you're doing. Because there are not few companies where you can work for so many different clients from different industries, from different backgrounds. And you work, if I might say so, with intelligent people because they're all pretty intelligent graduates um, and that gives you an intellectual challenge, which is really interesting. So I would say, yes, it's working hard, but you don't. it doesn't feel every day that you're working hard because hopefully it's something you do because you really like to do it with passion. I liked that phrase, take the best out of you rather than taking all out of you, because not everybody can survive it, particularly to your level. How do you become the boss of 1,600 people with an average age of 30? Yes, I basically think that, um, you know, first of all, you don't need to think about uh, wanting to become the boss. You need to think about while serving your clients, because one thing EY and all the big four have in common is that the the client service is really at the middle. And at the end of the day, it's the clients to a certain extent to decide how far you go because you are successful uh, in the market. Now, as regards myself, I always wanted to uh, be a leader. You know, the leader can be the boss of a company, can be something else because um, you, you are to a certain extent a generalist. You deal with HR, with finance, with clients, with strategy. And that's really something I always uh, love to do. And therefore, uh, in addition to clients to become the boss, you, you actually need to win the hearts and the minds of your fellow partners who, who, who need to elect you. Um, and they need to believe that you can bring them forward. So it's an investment over many, many years. Of course, it doesn't go from, from one day to another. But so I would say it's a combination between uh, your clients showing that you can manage and nurture your people and winning the support of your fellow partners. You clearly enjoy what you do. You have the mind to want to be engaged intellectually. Why did you not retire younger? Even younger, you mean? Even younger, Even, yes. This is, well, well, because I feel there's a conversation today in, a, in the younger society, perhaps, where people don't view work as the entirety of their life, but they view it yeah. as um, a means to get enough money yeah. to live a good life and do the other things they enjoy. Yes, but for me, um, I'm now 49, so unfortunately, <laughs> I am already not that young anymore. But in business, where you see where people work until 65, 70 uh, this is still, I consider this rather young to leave a company, um, uh, even younger, you know, to, to leave at 40 or something. Well, then would, I would not have been able to become the boss of the company because I became the boss at 38, which was already quite, quite young. Uh, and then if you want to do that for a longer period of time, you end up being end of 40. So I hope that I will be blessed with a life which will be longer than 50 <laughs> and that there will be enough time left to do other stuff, you know. 
And what are you going to do? Because you've been working at, I imagine, a very, very intense pace. How are you going to fill that void? Yeah, I think the first thing is to to not do the same than before. So uh, clearly the first thing is to find more time for your family, for your friends. And I have, I mean, I, I'm interested in plenty of things. So uh, I'm very diverse in terms of my interests, but I never had the time to lift that diversity of interest. Give us some examples. Um, well, for example, I have been at the Luxembourg Conservatoire for 15 years. I have been playing drums. I was not very talented, I must say. <laughs> But I really love to do it. I was doing a lot of music. As you mentioned before, I was doing, and I'm still doing a lot of sports. Um, I, I like, like the water, everything which relates to being in the water, being on sailing boats, etc. So, I mean, there's plenty of, of stuff to do, but then I will continue to work and occupy uh, my brain um, in the sense that I will continue to be active in Luxembourg, but just scale down in the type of intensity and number of hours. Looking retrospectively at EY and how it's changed alongside the big four, how do you think that will change in the future? Do you think the big four will continue as they are? Do you think they should be broken up? There's a, always a conversation about this. Should there be a place for other players in this field? And also with the evolution of AI, what is the place of a person in the auditing firms? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very, very good question. Um, first of all, I think that the big fours, if you look at them, have always been in constant um, change because if they don't change, they will disappear. Uh, so the change is in, as such just part of the normal, uh, the normal way of business. Um, should the big four be broken up? Uh, absolutely not, in my view. Now, of course, I am not really objective. If you I could be objective, if I could stand be objective, outside the box. I would say, I would say absolutely not because... Um, it gives a false perception that if you would break up between audit consulting, for example, that the audits would be better. But being myself an auditor by training, I can tell you it will be exactly the contrary because the, the, the one enriches in itself from the other. And at the end of the day, auditing is nothing else than attracting the best people. And even though there will be artificial intelligence and there will be more data analytics, so there will be tools which help you better audit. At the end of the day, it's an, a woman or a man who needs to take a judgmental decision on certain things, which he or she is auditing. And for that, you need to attract the best talent. And uh, my experience for 25 years, first with Arthur Anderson and then with EY, was that you get that best talent if, uh, as a firm, uh, you have all these competencies of auditing and consulting because the one helps, helps the other. People also sometimes switch in between. Um, and therefore, for me, it's a bit a wrong debate. I can understand where the debate is coming from, but I, I don't think it's, it's, really an, it's really a solution. I think the solution is really more in continuing to enhance the, the quality of the audits. And that is mainly through, uh, yes, some um, uh, artificial intelligence and, and, and certainly uh, data analytics. I think that's for me number one, but also mainly through the training of the people and the, the recruitment of the, uh, the best people. You mentioned that might be the wrong debate. So in your opinion, what would be the correct debate? Yeah, I think um, towards um, towards the big four, if you mean in particular audit, um, it's a continuous process of improving the audits. And um, there you have a struggle between uh, the cost of an audit and what the audit can give you. Uh, of course, the more time you spend, the more uh, you invest, 
the better assurance you can get. And at the same time, a audit cannot be uh, too expensive either. So the question is to find the right balance, to have the right level of regulation, which is, I think, um, already the case. Um, but an audit as such is always based on samples. It's never redoing everything. So there's always a risk uh, which, is, which is linked to it. And one must also know that somebody who wants to fraud is very often a step ahead. I saw in my career as an auditor a couple of frauds. And um, How did you detect them? What was it that stood out? Well, I mean, it's often um, either through uh, sophisticated IT applications or it's just by human error of the frauder because the frauder becomes imprudent and through using, and that's why I'm coming to using your common sense at the end of the day, you see that, you know, something doesn't smell good and you need to use your healthy skepticism because the, the trap of having too many checklists and of having, um, uh, you know, too much reliance on IT is that you forget to use your brain. And the frauder is very often very good at uh, fooling you uh, when you rely only on IT application or, or what you expect to see. And therefore, the human factor in an audit is really absolutely uh, important. And therefore, the training, again, of the people is so crucial. Well, it's nice to see there's a continuing role for humans in it. Absolutely. When you talk about auditing and all of these young people who want to start their careers with the big four, do you think it's their fascination by auditing or the money that drives their choice? Well, in the beginning, surely not the money, because then they would not come to a big four, because the big four are not among the ones who pay the, pay the best. Uh, in Luxembourg, at least, um, then you go to work for a bank or for the state or for I don't know whom, but not for a big four, uh, because we deliberately don't pay the highest salaries at the beginning, because our people spend an awful lot of time on training, as I mentioned before. So there's a lot of investment in training. And it's a model where your compensation grows as you grow in the company. So for people who stay with the big four longer than four or five years, yes, uh, the financial part starts to be very interesting and at some point clearly goes above what you would find if you start some, somewhere else. I what is the average lifespan of a person at one of the big four? Um, well, I would be tempted to say there is there is no one model. If you want, uh, there's only a minority which become partner. Uh, but for example, we are one thousand six hundred people, and we have we have uh, fifty two equity partners and forty seven salary partners. Um, and there are different perspectives. I'll give you my own. You know, when I started, I didn't go to start an audit because I said, oh my God, it's the dream of my life. I want to be an auditor. Absolutely not. I went to Big Four because I saw it as a school for learning, because I thought I need to be able to read the balance sheet. It's like basic education. I need to be able to, you know, um, look into different companies. I need to be able to work in a team. And that's what I'm going to get in the Big Four. And then I'm going to see after three or four years, I take that education and I go and do something else. And that's absolutely fine. Now, in my case, I started actually to like the environment. And so at some point I decided I would stay. But myself, I didn't go in a Big Four with the idea I will one day become a partner. That was not the, 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 my state of mind in the beginning. And I think it's not the state of mind of many people. And, and again, that's all fine because I think we are also happy 
we always say, you know, uh, if happy people, happy clients. If our people leave and they are happy with us, they will one day become happy clients. So we have all interest that um, when people leave, they will look back at their experience at EY in a positive way. Now, just thinking about the other hat that you've had at EY for such a long period of time, looking after Europe, Middle East, India and Africa, private equity fund leader for EY. Did that take you travelling across these lands? Yes, I I travelled actually a lot uh, in that role, but in general also because I remained a client service partner. I always refused to be a, a bureaucrat, which is just managing. So I had my own, as like any partner, and like my successor today, uh, my own book of business. That means clients which I serve. And these clients were also from that same industry, so private equity. And these clients are basically, to a large extent, the headquarters not uh, located in Luxembourg. So I have been traveling two or three times a year to China, once to the Middle East, twice to the US. So I've been traveling really quite a lot um, in that role, but even more, I would say, for my own private equity clients or clients of the firm, which were clients of other partners, but where it was uh, important that the Luxembourg managing partner paid them a visit. You are now in transition towards your retirement at a, a wonderfully young age in general. <laughs> oh, thank you. 49. <laughs> How does it feel to train up somebody to be your successor? Do you want to give them the best of you? Do you want them to succeed or do you want to be viewed as a better leader than them? <laughs> also a good one. Very, it's a very easy answer to that. For for me, um, you know, I've always looked back at myself. I had somebody who was a bit my mentor when I was young, who was the former managing partner of, of Anderson, Norbert Becker, who I always saw as, as a mentor and always told me, you know, never forget that um, the notion of stewardship. That means you le- need to leave the firm in a better place than when you got it. And the same way, uh, you want to make your successor uh, better than than yourself, and um, so for me, it's 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 basically something very natural. Now I had the the luck that my successor and I we know each other since almost since ever because when I became managing partner, Olivier became the private equity leader for Luxembourg, which was my role before. So we have been working hand uh, in hand for for so many years, and I think that I think that hopefully he takes the better part of me. But he doesn't take the worst part, and he dare he do twice to do something different, you know. So, I think um, uh, succession is very important, uh, which is something which should be smooth, so not disruption, not undoing just for the sake of undoing, but at the same time trying to do things differently, where one has different ideas or different approaches. And then, obviously, also because, you know, when I took over the firm, we were seven hundred people. We had about turnover of 100 million euro. Now we are 1,600. We have 260 million euro. So it almost tripled and um, uh, or multiplied by 2.5 uh, to be accurate, <laughs> which I should be as an auditor. <laughs> um, but, but you don't manage a firm of 1,600 like you manage a firm of 700. So you need to change anyway. What are the biggest changes there? Surely the size. I think I... I kind of felt it when we passed the 1,000 people mark. I felt it again when we passed the 1,500 people uh, people mark. And it's just, for example, I used to do a physical meeting once a year at Lux Expo, uh, getting all the people in one room. And the sheer size makes that this, uh, having 1,500 people sit there is, is quite a number, you know. So the way, the show you put on on stage is a different one than if you have only 700 people. Um, so... The physical connection, I would say, is 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 changing is changing very much. So when you and you have it 
in all your, whether it's your HR department, whether it is your finance department, it's just going to a different scale of, of company and way of management. And then frankly, also in terms of your management team, because in my management team, uh, we were only uh, three and at the end, four people. And now we have eight in the new team, uh, which is just basically adapting, if you want, your management team to the size of the firm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's not the 2.5 ratio on the management no, team. No, no, on the management team, not. <laughs> However, let's move to another part of your life, the state council membership. I'd like you to explain to us what that is, first of all. Yes, the state council, um, you know, in Luxembourg, um, we don't have a second chamber of deputies, uh, like in many other countries. We have no elected second chamber. So the state council, uh, if you want, is the institution which has been put in, in place to bring in some balance uh, into the um, lawmaking process, some checks and balances, if I might say so. So the State Council has 21 members, which are not elected, but which are nominated by the Grand Duke, uh, by the Chamber of Deputies. And basically, um, these members have as a role uh, to make an... um, uh, an opinion, an avi, as we call it, on each and every law, which is mandatory. And the state council basically checks uh, if the laws are in compliance with the constitution, with European law, but also uh, has the ability to have a view on the opportunity you know, of, of, of certain things uh, without, however, getting too political in uh, its um, opinions and thereby, I think, plays a very stabilizing role. Um, one might need to mention that the members of the, so I have been nominated for 15 years and before it was always, it was until I think 72 and even before for life. Now the, the nomination age now went down to 12, but still a pretty long time. And the reason for that is that it's quite a technical work. So it takes you some time to get into it. And then it's also an idea to, to have some stability, I would say, in the system. And you've done five of those 12 yes. years. So that will continue. 15, yes. Yeah, so for me, it's 15. And after me, um, the new members, um, it changed to 12. Yes. Sorry, so you, so you have another two thirds of time yes. left. And that will continue alongside the other exploratory yes. ventures that you're going to do, your drumming and your very sporting uh, yes. sailing or yachting around the world, whatever it may be. During that time uh, as a state council member, what have been uh, the most pivotal avis that you've had, opinions that you've had, or or the most interesting laws or debates that you've been party to? Yes. Now, in the State Council, the rule is that we don't, um, uh, on the outside, we don't uh, disclose who is basically writing avis on which uh, type of laws. Uh, But I can tell you that, however, in general, uh, for me, it is a very exciting experience because more than two thirds of the members, and actually by law, uh, are doctors in law. Uh, so they have a law degree, uh, which I don't, uh, because I'm an economist, a, fin- a financial management uh, and business person. Uh, so I come in there with a very different perspective. And I think that's that's also the idea, that there is this mixture of uh, views. I think every piece of law which touch the the economy and the business at large is, of course, a topic where I feel myself more at home. But I didn't go there in the state council just to be interested in that part of society. So, for example, 
Um, I uh, also sit in a commission uh, which takes care about culture, which is uh, basically a, a commission which is called Culture and Education. And so it's a topic where personally I'm, I'm very much uh, interested too. And I think that's also the idea in the State Council that you have a broader um, you know, a broader field of play than just your, your, your home um, sector. So in culture and education, which is nice to hear you say because you have a finance background, why have you such a deep interest in that? Because I think education is a solution to not everything, but almost everything. It's a solution to poverty. It's a solution to joblessness. It's a solution to unhappiness. And so I'm a big believer in education. Um, I took part in uh, 2000 in a project called uh, the School of the Future. It was a uh, project with uh, with the US, the US and my, my my company of the time, Arthur Anderson. And since then, I invested quite a lot. So I was uh, five years on the board of governors of the University of Luxembourg. Um, I was very long engaged with the International School of Luxembourg. So it's a topic um, which I think is a little bit, you know, what I try to do my contribution, if you want corporate social responsibility, call it like you want, but contribution to society because it's a topic which um, I, first of all, I find fascinating and I find uh, just more important than, than many others. Well, on that point, it wasn't one I thought we would discuss, but the future of education, do you think it is keeping pace? Because I say that because I feel the Luxembourg education system is quite different to, let's say, you you perhaps had children or you were involved with ISL. That is not the same type of education as the Luxembourg system. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. I think the I personally went through the traditional Luxembourgish school system, which I am still a big defender of, because I think that the system where you are educated in uh, three languages, German, uh, then French and, and English, uh, is something which is tough, yes, but life is not easy and it opens you up so many opportunities afterwards. This, this bilingual education is not only languages, you learn the cultures of these different countries. And so um, I personally remember, have very high um, opinions on the Luxembourg education system. Now, Obviously, there are challenges, but the, the question is if these challenges are not sometimes homemade by ourselves as as parents, um, because that's something I see, for example, in our company when we have now we had 350 new joiners, uh, which are 25 year old and which are joining. You can see the changes, you know, over the generations and also between the continents, because we recruit people from over 60, from from over 60 nations and. I think the bottom line is that, yes, you need to have good uh, teachers, you need to have good school books, good programs. But at the end of the day, it's the kids who need to have the structure, the methodology and the discipline to learn. Um, and um, that, I think, will never change. And uh, so I think that one, one needs to understand and to accept the fact that going to school is not only smileys, it's also frustration, it's not easy, and it's not always the fault of the teacher um, one also need to to look at those which are sitting there, which are the kids. You recruit from over 60 countries. So you've seen a widespread educational background. Yes. Which countries provide the best education for the people who become employees for EY? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question because it's a big debate uh, currently. Um, and what you see is that uh, in different countries, it depends also from what I would say social class and what access to which schools you had. But by and large, um, we see that countries like India are just fantastic when it comes to IT, technology, 
I visited uh, them in Bangalore. Uh, they have fantastic universities. So, um, but the same is also true with China. I mean, people coming up from the top Chinese universities are extremely well educated. They are very hungry also, because you can have, um, uh, you know, you you can have the best universities, but you need to have the ambition and the hunger to to also learn and progress. And um, I think that what we see is uh, people coming from, let's say, the eastern part, also people coming from the Philippines, for example. Um, they have. And perhaps you're suggesting that Europeans, and we haven't mentioned Americans, we're losing our thirst, that want. Is life too easy for us here? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I think that it's difficult to generalize because we have... Uh, again, we have fantastically ambitious Europeans and Americans. Uh, there's no question about that. But also, I think we need to open our eyes. And the reality is, uh, whether we like it or not, that there are parts of the world where maybe we have, they have not yet reached the same level of prosperity which we have. And um, the kids of today, their parents are maybe in, an, in a situation like our grandparents were. And... And of course, yes, uh, in, on average, what you can see is that um, people coming from these countries have sometimes a, a greater hunger. But again, it's not something you can generalize and you find fantastic people from Europe, which is the main place where, where we hire. But I would have to lie to say that there is not some truth about it. Just moving more globally on an economic thought process, we have this situation of COVID. Yes. <laughs> um, in your experience, you've seen the markets move in all sorts of directions. What do you think will happen over the next year, perhaps five, even 10 years? And of course, a lot of governments are now spending so much, one will have to pay this back in taxes at some point in our lives. <laughs> what do you think are the right choices, the wrong choices that have been made by the Luxembourg government? And what do you think will happen to our economy here in Europe and more globally? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's the $1 million question. Uh, we don't, of course, nobody has a crystal ball. It's very clear. But... Um, my view on this from just the experience on the ground is that, yes, we must protect um, our people. I think um, that's, that should be priority number one. And I think that is what also happened here in Luxembourg. But uh, health is not an end in itself. Health is something which is something to make you happy. And if um, the restrictions are such that... The, the downfalls of the restrictions are higher than the benefit, then one can ask oneself some questions. And therefore, I think that the policy which the Luxembourg government has taken so far is the right one, which is not to be, not to lock down more than really necessary and protect those people which are the most vulnerable, which are the, uh, as we all know with this virus, the older people. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think this virus will go away so quickly. Uh, I don't believe there will be a vaccine in a, such a short period of time. And if there will be one, how good will it be? Will it be 50% effective, 60 70%? So somehow, whether we like it or not, I think this virus will stay not forever, but for some time. And, and life must go on because otherwise, um, if we are just accumulating debts and costs we are putting at stake our the future generations because they need they will need to pay for that and at the end of the day i think that there is no zero risk society often people want politicians to give them the full casco on society but that doesn't exist uh, there is a certain risk and of course you need to take all the sanitary measures and be prudent etc 
but risk, there is a certain risk which is part of life and you cannot stay the next 20 years at home. Kids, they need to go to school because every year lost is a big year lost. And um, therefore, I think um, life must go on. We need to do it as securely as possible, but we should not be extremist and we should not take positions which basically put at stake the real future of the next generations. Do you want to go into politics? Well, I have already, I would say, half a foot into, always had half a foot into politics because I think it's no secret that I'm very much engaged with one political party. Which is? Uh, which is the Liberal Party, the Demokratische Partei, DP, uh, where I have been since I'm 16. So I have been very engaged also in the young liberals when I was, when I was younger. And um, although the state council is not political, we know that most people who are on the, in the state council had some political uh, background. Uh, but um, that for me for now is, um, is, is the right um, dose and the right level. Uh, so, so you don't want to be uh, the next Xavier Bettel? No. Okay, well, just parking that, we do wish you a wonderful retirement. I can't imagine it'll be a slow one at all. I imagine you'll fill your time with a variety of things and we'll see you in many different roles in the future, perhaps in Luxembourg, perhaps you'll live in a few other places too. Do you want to live somewhere else? I like, uh, I must say, I, uh, I'm a bit uh, fan, a big fan of Luxembourg. So I'm, maybe it's a bit old fashioned, but I'm proud of my little country and I will surely not go away, but I really also love the sun and which I really miss and I miss the water. And therefore, uh, my, my second kind of home is South of France. Where in the south of France do you Saint-Tropez. <laughs> okay, so that's where you'll, you'll be spending your, your waterside retreat time. <laughs> is there anything you would like to add to our conversation? No, just that I enjoyed the conversation and thank you very much for having invited me. Oh, it's my great pleasure. And just uh, with respect to your successor and the people, all of those people that you've led for so long at EY, how would you like to be remembered by them? Well, as somebody who um, brought the firm forward and who I hope for some of them helped them or encouraged them or groomed them to make a great career. Alan, thank you so much for your time You're this welcome. morning. Thank you very much.